simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist Private Podcast. Today, we're here with Vanessa Van Edwards. Her new book is called Cues. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version. Before we get to our More About Less segment, Vanessa, we wanted to talk, we were talking off mic here about awkwardness. Mm. And you talk about being a recovering awkward person. Yes. So awkwardness, I think it dresses up as different things. So I think some people, they feel awkward and they shut down. They inhibit, they go quiet, they go into their introvertedness. They try to hide. Other people, their awkwardness dresses up as being big, over the top, dramatic, interrupters, show offers. Mm. And so I think that awkwardness is this very unique trait because it shows up differently in different people, but you don't always know that you're seeing it. Mm. Right? Like you might meet someone and be like, God, they're a show off. Well, that's just because they're scared. Like I think awkwardness comes because we're, for me at least, I am awkward because I'm scared of being judged. I'm scared you're not going to like me. And I'm scared I'm unworthy that I should be with you, that I'm not worthy of your time or your conversation. But you wouldn't know that because it dresses up as me shutting down, mm. me closing in, me being scared, me being quiet. And so I think that awkwardness is this thing that if we can talk about it, we can see how it's dressing up for people and get to the real heart of what people are afraid of. Yeah. Yeah, and so mm. you're afraid not of the awkwardness itself, but of the way that people perceive you. Now, Ryan, we were downstairs in the bathroom. You were you were saying something that I found really fascinating. Yeah, I uh, I, I don't care what people think about me. Like, as long as they're interpreting me correctly, oh. that that's what matters. So, you know, it's like if we were talking, and you're like, oh man, that Ryan Nicodemus guy, he really, you know, you tweet something about how I hate puppies or something. <laughs> And I would be like, what did I do? Like, that's where I, that's my pet peeve. Of like, wait, what did I do to make you think? Like, mm. you're interpreting me wrong. Mm. But if you went and tweeted like, oh, that Ryan Nicodemus, he's a minimalist and, you know, he's stupid. I would be like, yeah, I'm pretty stupid and I'm a minimalist. You know, like, I don't <laughs> care what people think, but I do care about how they interpret me. And it's, and it's interesting because like this, this little conversation is so valuable for so many people, uh, especially for me, because like with certain people, they will come across as defensive or irritated or having the resting bothered face. Yeah. And instead of me reacting to what uh, I think their cues mean, yeah. I tell myself like, oh, they don't know how to handle the situation right now. They're mm -hmm. nervous. They're awkward. They're awkward. Yeah. And it helps me so much um, to deescalate things. Yeah. yeah. I also think it's important. It's beautiful what you said that your, your fear comes from, oh, they're not going to understand who I truly am. Mm. This is really hard for the opposite. So I think I have the opposite as you, which is I have horrible imposter syndrome. Mm. So I think I truly am unworthy. Mm. So for me, it's not that I want people to see that I'm truly unworthy. I'm trying to convince them that I am worthy, even mm. though I sometimes feel very unworthy. Uh. So, you, so there's, I think, different ways that it can play out. If you have yeah. someone who has really low self-esteem or social anxiety or imposter syndrome, for them, they are fighting you seeing who they worry they truly are. Mm. Like, I am fighting with myself constantly that I, I, I'm not an imposter, mm. that, that I want to prove my worth. Yeah. And I don't want you to see that. Mm. Yes. I don't want you to see that I'm fighting that all the time. Oh, Vanessa, but you are, <laughs> I don't, I don't think you're an imposter. Like expound on that a little bit, I guess. Like where, where do you think you think people, people are, uh, what do you think people think about where you are versus like where you feel like you are? I think that the, the hardest part for me is I write about confidence and charisma. Yes. We talked about this very briefly earlier. I wrote a book called Captivate. I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> when I wrote that book. I mean, I love that book. It's a great book. Mm. But when you talk about being captivating, you have to be captivating all the time. Mm. Right. And so, like, well, that, but, but you don't, this is you saying, you I, yeah, I feel I do. This is the prison that yeah. you've, you've placed yourself in. Yeah. Now, Ryan and I, ironically, we 
do certain things that people don't perceive as minimalist, right? Yeah. Because we own more than 15 items or, mm-hmm. yeah, oh my yeah. God, I've you wear... 16. <laughs> oh my God, you wear underwear, you yeah. drive a car. And do you have shame? I'm, I'm just curious, do you have shame around that at all? No, you know, I, no. no. I used to have the imposter syndrome. Right. And maybe that that is kind of maybe linked with shame a little yeah. bit. But anyway, yeah, keep, keep going, Josh. We talked to, we had... A porn star on the podcast. Her name's Lisa Ann. Where and, are we going with this? How are we going? I'm anyway, worried about how we're going to go. This, uh, this is a plug okay. for our, this is a plug for our OnlyFans account. <laughs> okay. Ryan asked her a brief question. In fact, we're going to bring her back on the podcast to talk, do a whole episode about shame. He he asked, "Do you ever deal with shame? You know, being in the industry that you're in." And she goes, "I find that quite often people try to hand me their shame. Yeah, <sighs> yep. the way that." That they think I should feel ashamed for what I'm doing, right? And I find that now with minimalism, I, I often like get other people handing me their shame. their shame, yeah. right? Now it could be a shame about my situation, their judgment on me. Of course, judgment is just a mirror of the insecurities of the judge. Mm-hmm. Or they're handing me their personal shame, like, oh, I feel ashamed and I can't embrace simplifying my life because of the way other people are going to think about me. Mm-hmm. I think there's this other path though. We were talking about this downstairs off mic. I know that I'm awkward mm-hmm. and that knowing that I'm awkward. So what is the truth behind this? Yeah. Yes. I don't want to come off as awkward maybe, but I am awkward. So what am I saying? I don't want to come off as me. I want mm. to be disingenuous. As an Enneagram three, that's easy for me to put that mask on mm. and say, okay, I'll put on a mask so I'm not awkward. Be cool. But what about be myself? What is actually cooler than that? Being awkward. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. 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 And so I, when you said that to me earlier, it like took my breath away. Right. Because like I, f- I spend my life trying to fight awkwardness. And so for you to say, oh, I, I am awkward. So it's OK if I am was like, <gasps> because I think that's that is extremely authentic. And so I think when we talk about I was almost worried to put out cues because it was I was sharing with the world the operating system I need to use to socially survive. Mm-hmm. And I was really scared about that because I basically am admitting I don't know how people work. I get really anxious around them. I have to memorize conversation starters and cues to be able to interact. And I was so scared about that when I first put it out there. Mm-hmm. But it's true. Yeah. Like when I'm interacting, I have to think, okay, now do a head tilt. Now make eye contact. Now use a gesture. Like that does not come naturally to me. I have to think about it that way because I really want to connect with people. And so to connect, I have to have the right cues to do it. Yeah. So talk to me about well, some of those cues that you just mentioned. So yeah gestures. What are some yeah. of the gestures that are cues that you, you've seen with me and Ryan so far during our interactions? Yes. Yeah, so gestures are incredibly powerful. I think they're the one of the most underestimated aspects of our nonverbal. Here's why. When someone really knows their stuff, when someone's seen as highly competent, mm. we know that they know their stuff so well that they can speak to you on multiple tracks. So a highly competent person will be delivering verbal content and then outlining their verbal content with their gestures. Mm. So a really smart person will say, hey, today I want to talk to you about three different things. Mm. And they'll hold up three. And you go, oh, it really is three. Mm. That looks real. Or they'll say, you know, today I want to talk to you about a big idea. Mm. TED Talkers do this a lot, right? We the do a big TED palm. Talk, open palm, right? And so imagine if I were to come on and say, hey, today I want to talk to you about three big ideas. <laughs> if you're just listening to the audio, she's yeah. holding up five fingers. Yeah. Right. You, le- Our brain goes, uh-uh-uh. 
And that is because researcher Susan Goldwyn Meadow found that gestures carry more weight than words. In fact, some gestures carry 400% more explanation than words. Mm. So if I were to say, I have a really big idea, it's going to change the world. And I'm holding up like I'm holding a quarter. Mm. Your brain is like, no, it's not big. Mm. And that is because your brain is literally giving more weight to the gesture. So the way that highly competent people cue is they say, I know my stuff so well that not only am I going to explain it verbally, I'm going to explain it non-verbally. So when I say I have part one and then I have part two, whenever I'm talking about part two, I'm over here. And you guys do that really well. You gesture to each other a lot when you're like, I'm handing it to you. Mm. Or when you're gesturing or acknowledging each other, you open palm gesture to the other. Mm. That is a very subtle way that is both warm and competent. An open palm gesture is a universal warmth gesture. It means I'm not hiding anything. Mm. So when we're open palm gesturing towards each other, it's saying, I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to direct the flow of conversation and I'm not hiding anything. It's like, um, it's like yeah. beautiful. I would love to see a TED talk where you 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 know uh, show how gestures mixed with words can send two completely different messages. messages. Like yes. you could do a five minute thing where you're like where you kind of do the things you were just doing. Like I've got I've got a really big idea. So for that's you my here. TED talk. If you go yeah. watch it, oh, that's okay, like, I haven't seen it yet. So, okay, awesome. So that is actually what. So I did a Beautiful. big research experiment where we analyzed thousands of hours of TED talks in our lab. All I wanted to know at the very beginning of the experience is what are the differences between the most viewed TED talks and the least viewed TED talks are there patterns. So we lined up all these TED talks side by side and we coded all these TED talks for cues. We looked for gestures. We clocked smiling. We looked at clothes they wore. We looked at how they moved across the stage. We listened to vocal power. We found that gestures was the single biggest difference between the most viewed TED Talks and the least. Mm. So when we counted, the most viewed TED Talkers use an average of 465 gestures in 18 minutes. Wow. The least popular TED Talkers, just by view count, use an average of 272. So almost half. Wow. What's happening? What often happens when someone's delivering verbal content is they memorize their speech and they forget about their gestures. Mm. So the worst TED Talker sounded like this. Today, I have a big idea and it's going to change the world. What we're going to talk about today is my research, researching all the ways the planets move in the earth. Whatever. I said Mm. nothing. Whereas a really good TED Talker would say it like this. Today, I want to talk about a big idea. Mm. I'm going to break it down into three different areas on how the planets change our solar system. Mm. That subtle difference sounds between memorized and congruent. Yeah. Yeah. Gestures and words. Man. Hey, podcast, Sean, let's get a link to uh, Vanessa's TED Talk. Put that in the show notes. I can't wait to see that. Oh, I have so much fun with gestures because that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed anything with me and Ryan? What are we doing poorly in terms of our gestures? (laughs) Especially Ryan. Yeah, especially me. (laughs) You know, I'll tell you one that I know right off the bat that I do is I pick my nails a lot. Uh And it's interesting because when I pick my nails, there's something in my brain that it it narrows my focus. Like it helps me look at something a little bit more intently. Yes. Because it's like, I'm, dis- yeah. You are doing what's called a displacement tactic mm. naturally. So when we are, um, processing, we have movement, right? So we'll move our hands, we'll look up and down. Movement actually can help us get ideas out. But the problem is it can be very distracting, even for ourselves. So a displacement tactic is when you give your fingers or your body something to do. So if you're a fidgeter or if you're trying to focus, try just pinching your thumb and finger together, Mm. even just subtly. That will give your brain something to do and it immediately focuses and grounds your thoughts. Yeah, that's good. So you picking your finger is actually your way of displacing the anxious energy so that your brain can focus and your fingers have something to do. Yeah. So like uh, I often tell like speaking students that if they're swaying, 
on on stage or they're fidgeting or they're hopping or pacing, they should try to either squeeze their fingers together or clench their toes because it mm-hmm. gives their brain something to do and it gets rid of the nervous energy. Uh, I am a swayer as well. I also like to sway. You, you try to grip your toes. Yeah, no, I just always thought you were toes. dancing. It will immediately, it will immediately <laughs> ground you. Yeah. you. Just grip your toes together. It's Yeah, absolutely. It's weird how I can just, I can't even explain the feeling, but I can feel it when when I'm pinching my fingers or when I'm it's a displacement tactic. My nose, Just yeah. think of it as channeling all that anxious energy into a movement. Mm. I'll tell you something that's hard. You asked for a bad thing. It's so hard for me in the middle of the two of you because I want to look at you and then I want to look at you and I feel like I'm playing tennis. Or like I'm watching <laughs> tennis. You know what I mean? So that's the great. only hard thing is I'm like, oh, I want to give you eye contact. Oh, but I want to give you eye contact. Mm. And then I miss your nods, right? Mm. I'll miss your nods mm. when I'm looking at you. Mm. So I'm missing cues and it's it makes me a little nervous. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we have a little segment on the podcast we call More About Less. We use a little article as a jump off point for a conversation here. This is from our friend Joshua Becker over at Becoming a Minimalist. The article is called The Greatest Conversation Advice I Ever Received. I'm not going to read the whole thing, although we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I wanted to get Vanessa's thoughts on this. He has a quote in here from How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm. The quote is, so if you aspire to be a good conversationalist, be an attentive listener. To be interesting, be interested. Ask questions that other persons will enjoy answering. Encourage them to talk about themselves and their accomplishments. Remember that the people you are talking to are a hundred times more interested in themselves and their wants and problems than they are in you and your problems. Mm-hmm. Yes, you 100% talk about agree. That? Yes. So first, let's talk about um, How to Win Friends and Influence People for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So that was a fundamental book. So many people have read it. The funny thing about books like that, it's very helpful, but a lot of those books are extroverts writing about their social skills. Mm. And that is very hard if you're not an extrovert. I'm not an extrovert. I'm an ambivert. So I'm Mm. somewhere in between. Mm. If you're an extrovert writing about communication and people skills, you're basically telling introverts, I want you to pretend to be an extrovert. Mm. Right? You're basically telling people, I want you to fake being outgoing and that's going to make you likable. Mm -hmm. And so I want to just say that, yes, I love some of the principles in there, but I do not think that you have to fake being an extrovert or fake being outgoing to be liked. Charisma is not about being extroverted. Charisma is about being interested. And that's the part of the quote that I really like. Mm. So to be interesting, you be interested. Let's talk about, let's break that down and how that works. So actually the way that, I always read that advice, by the way, I remember reading that book at, at like 13 or 14, you know, my, my deep awkward stage, you know, hoping for something. <laughs> I remember thinking, what does that mean? Like, how do I do that? So here's how you do it, is research has found that when we produce dopamine in conversation, it actually makes you more memorable. So this is research from Dr. John Medina. And what he found is that dopamine also does a lot of things in our body, but it's it's the chemical of motivation. It's the chemical of pleasure and excitement. And when you're asked about things that make you feel excited, you actually produce dopamine and you create what are called mental markers. Dr. Medina calls them mental post-it notes. That you're with someone and they ask you a dopamine-worthy question. Your brain goes, ooh, this person makes me feel good. I'm going to remember them. Mm. So when you produce dopamine in a conversation, people are more likely to remember your name. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to remember you. So how do we produce dopamine? You literally use dopamine triggering words. Such as? Such as. So instead of, and if we can do a a challenge, do not ask, what do you do anymore? Totally agree. Yes. When you ask someone, what do you do? You're asking their brain to stay asleep. You're basically saying, I want you to stay on autopilot and answer Mm -hmm. the same question you've answered a thousand times before. Mm -hmm. And also, what do you do is really asking, what are you worth? Yeah. 
I think it's actually a little bit of an offensive question. So if we're going to get rid of it, what are we going to replace it with? What you want to replace it with are things that someone defines themselves by that get them excited. So working on anything exciting recently, that's a very, very simple swap, but it allows someone to say, am I working on anything exciting? And they can answer with work or they can answer with pleasure. Mm -hmm. You can also ask, have any personal passion projects? Right? Mm. Are you looking forward to any big projects coming up? Looking forward to is a dopamine word. Excited, working on anything exciting is a dopamine word. Have any personal passion projects is a dopamine word. Mm. So all we're doing is we're trying to sub out autopilot questions for dopamine producing questions. I love it. So I've turned that question around. When someone asks me, what yes. do you do? Yes. Um, I'm usually like, you know, uh, what I love to do mm. is I really love to snowboard. Mm. What do you love to do? Yes. And like that just creates a completely different conversation. So what do you love to do? Mm-hmm. Working on any personal passion projects, yeah. working on anything exciting, have any fun projects coming up. There's four that we can replace. Let's also replace, how are you? Right? Yes. Yeah. Right now, every co- if you ask someone, how are you? Here's the answer you're going to get. So how are you? Busy. Good, but busy. Yeah. Is that not the answer that everyone right. gives every time? Yeah. So no more, how are you? Instead, ask, what's good? Mm. Yeah. Right. Like that simple swap, asking a brain what's good, they literally are searching for good, 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 good. You're literally flipping them into gratitude in a very simple two word question. So on my team calls, we have team calls every Tuesday. I noticed at the very beginning of a team call, there was like this awkward, oh, those numbers, the weather. Sorry, I'm late. It was like, it was very awkward. I was like, no more. So we start every team call with tell me something good. And we all save our tell me something good of some miniature, mini Mm -hmm. sort of small success that we can all share. Mm. And that ritual has also helped. So if you have a team call or a date or a text thread or a friend group where you can start to sub out the how are you, how's it been going with tell me something good, let's celebrate a win. Mm. You're literally giving people dopamine that helps them feel more motivated. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I got a, uh, we do... um minimalist.org, which is like these little meetup groups that we've set up in some of the cities. And I have a call this Saturday with all the community leaders. And I usually do like a check-in question where I'm like, you know, tell me how you are one to 10. And then I'll have a question. That's going to be my question this this Saturday. Yeah. Tell me something good. Oh yes. I love it. And I want you to pay attention to the cues that you see. So you'll, it's funny when you ask someone an autopilot question, they Mm -hmm. stay asleep. Yeah. Right. They often half lid. Um, they half lid, like they close their eyes. It's like, oh God, this is boring. They usually go down, like they like sag, sag their chest down. Mm-hmm. If you ask someone something good, they go up. They go, mm. oh, and their eyebrows go up, right? Mm-hmm. When our eyebrows go up, that's a universal sign of warmth. Mm-hmm. Um, they often will go up in their vocal power. Oh, because they're actually thinking and questioning themselves. They mm-hmm. often will sit up straighter. Oh, and they like, they pull their shoulders back and down. So even that has like a physiological change. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when we when we first moved to LA five years ago, going on five years ago, um, you know, we were here for a few months and Josh is like, hey man, how do you like living in LA? I'm like, I love LA, but I don't think LA likes me. <laughs> and he's like, why do you say that? And I'm like, well, you know, like people aren't as friendly because we come from a small town in, in Montana, Missoula, Montana, where, mm-hmm. you know, you ask someone like, hey, how are you doing? And there's usually some, pretty good interaction that goes yeah. on. But in LA, you say, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, what can I do for you? Yeah. Like, how can I help? What do you need? Or busy, but good. Right, exactly. Or they name drop. Yeah, right. Or they name drop, right. <laughs> I'm from LA. I know well, how that goes. <laughs> but there's so many people, I get it. Like, there is this barrier. There is this autopilot thing that 
it's hard not to have um, in Los Angeles, especially like if you're in the food and you know drink industry. I can only imagine the uh, just the repetition that you get into. So um, I was telling Josh, like you know, I walk in like my joyful self, hey, how's it going? And, and they're like, uh, what, what do you need, dude? Like they look at me like I have three heads. They look at me, reminds me of the minimal question we had. Like they look at me like I'm an alien. Like what is this? What drugs is this guy on? Yeah. Who does he think he is? Like all it's, these. It's intimidating for people who don't feel that way. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, I would shut down because yeah. I'm like, oh, I've like, I've disrupted this person. I'm yeah. going to like, I'm going to go ahead and shut it down. And Josh was like, well, let me tell you, man, it sounds like you need to do one of two things. You either need to turn it down or you need to turn it up. And I was like, ah, I'm going to try turning it up and see what happens. So I did. Hey, how's it going? What can I get you? You know, I'm going to get a coffee, but seriously, how's it going today? How's your day? How's your day going? And like, there's this wall that started to come down when I just kind of pushed through uh-huh. to show them like I'm being genuine, I'm being consistent, you know, yeah. I'm I'm genuinely interested. But now I'm going to replace it with what's good and what's see good? and see how fast that wall drops. Yes, what's good, what's been going good. And remember that your cues are contagious. Mm. So when you bring it up, you're not only saying, I'm not going to go down to you, I want you to come up to me, which mm. is a very interesting social cue, right? Yeah. Um, and that uh, people will often not always rise to the occasion, but also you're being more infectious. Mm. So positive and negative cues are are both both infectious. And this happens from a chemical place as well as a physical place. Mm. So it's a very disgusting study, a study I'm about to share. It's very demonstrative. <laughs> are you ready? Okay. This is the private podcast. Okay, okay. So <laughs> what they did is they brought people into the lab and they split them up into two groups. And the first group, they had them run on the treadmill and wear sweat pads. So underneath their armpits, okay. no deodorant. Mm-hmm. They just caught their sweat. The second group, they had them wear the sweat pads, new sweat pads, but skydive for the first time. Okay. They wanted to know if the sweat was different from treadmill sweat to skydiving sweat. Mm. So they took these sweat pads and they brought participants into the lab. These poor participants. I hope they paid them well. (laughs) They put them in fMRI machines and they had them smell the sweat pads. Oh my goodness. Right. Now, imagine this for a second. You have no idea what you're smelling. You're just smelling a white pad (laughs) and you're smelling it in an fMRI machine. What they found was that when people smelled the skydiving sweat, they caught the fear. Their wow. amygdala lit up of where they process fear and they began to feel afraid. Oh my God, science. Oh my God, science. <laughs> right? And so I share this because I think if you show up positive and upbeat and excited, you are sending off physical, vocal, verbal, and chemical signals of up. Yeah. And that is contagious. Mm-hmm. If you show up negative, if you show up afraid and fearful and anxious, that is also catching. People yes. can also catch that fear. Yeah. And so wow. I also think going back to awkwardness, like I want to get my mind right. I try to only show up to places where I'm truly calm and confident because I know that I would rather not show up than be inauthentic and send off signals of fear. Yeah. I, something to consider with this too is I used to look at all these verbal cues and these approaches and these techniques. I used to look at those like, oh, this is how you fake being happier. This is yeah. how you fake being uh, yeah. engaged or whatever. But really, th- that being engaged, being happy, that's the person I want to be. Yeah. So in a way, like, don't, I wouldn't look at this as a manipulation tool. This is more of like, a, hey, who are you as a person? This is how you project into the world who you want to be as a person. And what's yeah. cool is like, I could be having a bad day. But if I'm projecting, you know, happiness and, and you know, laid backness, like eventually, I'm going to f- feel a little happy. I'm going to feel a little laid back. And there is a feedback loop there. Like Mm. they have shown that when you sit in an open posture, they ask participants in the lab to sit in an open posture and come up with creative ideas. And they ask other participants to sit in a closed posture, just crossed arms Mm. and come up with creative ideas. People in the open posture came up with more creative ideas. Mm. So 
putting your body and your voice and your cues in the right place can also create loops for yourself to get your mind to the right place. Mm. So you can either start with your mind and work your way out. You can also start with your way out and work your way in. Mm. My wife calls this approaching the world in a loving way Mm. because I'm an extreme introvert. I don't spend time with many people. But when I am out and about, people often mistake my social competence with extroversion because when I do show up, I'm at the coffee shop across the street, I will approach the world in a loving way. It may not be my natural default, but because I'm spending so much time alone, I sort of have the bandwidth or the capacity to show up in a loving way. Mm. And realizing this interaction is not just about me. In fact, it's not really about me at all. The way to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. Mm. But the irony of this is if you show up loving, that often does yes. change them without forcing the change on them. A hundred percent. Like what a great way to have influence. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh. Like if we're talking about how do we have influence, being positively contagious is a unique way to go about it. Yeah. I want to talk to you about some tough conversations. Oh, we dear. have we have some surprise questions curated by Malabama here. I thought we would start with Dave's question. What's the toughest conversation you've ever had to have? Ooh. Hmm. Easily every time I have to fire someone. Mm. I mean, like they're all horrible. I could probably think of one specifically. I think that delivering bad news is a trap for an awkward person. Because if you're an awkward person, all you want is to be liked. But if you know that you have bad news, if you know that you're firing someone or you have bad news to impart, you know they're not going to like you. Mm. And so it's impossible to be like, I have to deliver this news and I have to also sacrifice that fear that I've had my whole life of not being liked because it's not, I'm not going to be liked. Yeah. So that's probably the hardest conversation. Wow. Man. How about you guys? I, Are you I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> that's why, I, I mean, I, for me, the, the one that comes to mind right away is uh, when my first marriage ended and mm-hmm. having that conversation. So it's delivering bad news there as well. I, I will say this be, because quite often as someone who wants to be liked, and we all want to be liked to some certain extent, right? Yeah. But if the more we want to be like, the more we desire the approval, the veneration, the applause of other people, the the tighter that prison cell is for us, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, we had a boss, I remember, who was totally fine with firing people. I wouldn't say that he enjoyed it, although he may have a little bit. He got adrenaline from it, for and, sure. And oh, so, yeah, Vanessa, yeah. maybe tell us about the... we When we had a boss, when we worked together in the corporate world, who had no problem at all having these tough conversations, what makes that person different from us? Mm. So I think that power... In one word, power. Mm. So for me, I would always rather be liked than be seen as powerful. Like that's yeah. no, that's a no-brainer for me. Yeah. But for other people, it's the opposite. They are happy to not be liked if people think they're impressive and powerful and capable. And so if you're firing someone or you're having a conversation where you're the deliverer of bad news, that is the ultimate position of power. Mm. You don't care about being liked, but you're saying, I'm in control of you and I'm in control of the news. So I think that that power dynamic is actually what the change is. And we're often trying to sacrifice one or the other, right? We're trying to say, do I want to be powerful and respected or do I want to be liked? I think that you can be both, but it's really hard. Yeah, it's that old like for a king, you know, does a king want to be loved or do they want to be feared? Exactly. And there is, yeah, there's a, there's a balance in within that. Um, but yeah, he definitely loved the being feared. <gasps> he got off on being feared. Yeah. Another word for it is uh, sociopathic. <laughs> or narcissistic. Or narcissistic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I will say that these difficult conversations that we dread having, most of us dread having, 
they're usually the conversations that most need to be had. I know. The firing well. someone, yes. the divorce. When I left my corporate career, that was a very difficult conversation to have. Mm. And yet these are the things that allow us to move forward. It's it's just like the the whole free speech argument. It's like no one cares about protecting speech that we all agree with. Like, oh, Ryan, I think you're handsome. How dare you? <laughs> no, like, we don't need to protect that free speech. We need to protect the free speech where it's like, oh, I don't agree with that. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true with these difficult conversations. These are quite often the conversations worth having, having those tough conversations. Yes, yeah. and here's the problem that we make is these difficult conversations are the most important conversations sometimes in our life. Yeah. Right? Like mm-hmm. they're defining moments in our life. So the problem is, is people often will prep for those difficult conversations with trying to have the right cues, trying to have the right vocal power. They script out the perfect thing. And then they wait to try all that out for the first time in the conversation. Mm. That is the biggest mistake we make when Mm. trying to communicate better is we wait for the hard conversations. (laughs) We we, we go, I want to talk to a VIP. Let's even not talk about bad news. Let's talk about good news. I really want to talk to a VIP. I really want to nail that interview. And so they practice for that really hard thing, but then they get into the actual really hard thing and their adrenaline is pumping and it's really hard. So actually what I want you to think about is you should get your cues right when it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? Like, you should forget practicing with your boss. Do not practice these things for a tough conversation. No, no. I want you to practice first with someone you don't know and don't care about. In fact, you have an exercise in the book where you videotape yourself. Yes. No one watches. Right? Like, that's the absolute best. There's no stakes yeah. because it's really hard to try on cues. There's 96 different cues. It's hard to try them on when there's stakes mm-hmm. because then you're even more nervous. So I'd rather you try them on and there's like a ladder here. So the very first place to try them is just with yourself. So videotaping yourself and coding yourself. What cues are you sending when you're listening? Do you have resting bothered face? Right. Are you a nodder? Are you a disgust person? Do you often trinkle your nose up when you're listening? Are you an eyebrow raiser? Are you a shifter? Are you a fidgeter? I want you to know what your nervous tells are. I think everyone should know their nervous tells. I think yeah. it's incredibly important. It's an empowering piece of information to know about yourself. What do you do when you're nervous and what do you do when you lie? Yeah. The exercise I give in the book, which I'll share here, this is so powerful. Open your webcam and first answer, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? This is a recall question. It's going, you're going to see what you look like when you recall non-important information. Mm. Do you look up to the left? Are you a fidgeter? Do you close your eyes? Do you purse your lips? That's how you look when you're recalling. It's important to know about yourself. The next question I want you to answer is, what is your most embarrassing moment? And I want you to deliver it to the camera as if you're sharing it with me. This is what you look like when you're talking about something, recalling nervousness. How do your cues change? Do you fidget more? Do you fidget less? Do you freeze? Do you show the fear micro expression where your eyes are really wide? Mm. Do you use less gestures or more gestures? Mm. That's how you look when you're nervous. The third one is the most important. I want you to tell me or pretend you're telling me a made up embarrassing story. So I want you to deliver an embarrassing story that did not actually happen to you. It cannot have happened to you or someone you know. Mm. And I want you to pretend that you're delivering it to me and try to convince me that that's your real embarrassing story. Mm. That's what you look like when you're lying. Ah. And I think that we should know those cues about ourselves. We should. That's wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Man, this is awesome. We have a question here from Jeanette. What's the best way to have tough conversations with coworkers, friends, and family, especially conversations about offensive topics? Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's really important with bad news is I know that a lot of people teach the sandwich method. Have you heard of the sandwich method? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. We, we practice it diligently in, in the, our corporate days and 
in our day and days. I, there's today. some good, there's some good, something good to be said for a sandwich method is, um, you know, bread, meat, bread is you have good news, the bad news in the middle and the good news at the end. Yeah. I think that can work. The problem is, is that with really bad news, you're actually making, right. you're tainting the good news. Yes. It's like putting a, a tainted piece of meat in a sandwich. It's a poop sandwich. Mm. Yeah, yeah right. it, the whole sandwich mm. is going to taste bad. It actually makes your good sound false. The yeah. sandwich tastes like crap. It tastes like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It literally tastes like crap. Yeah. And so I would actually say for the really tough stuff, you don't want to even try to add the good. And I would actually put it up front. And there was some research on this. And forgive me, I haven't read it in a couple of years. But it looked at delivering bad news, specifically in interviews. Like if you if you're in an interview and you have a tough thing you have to bring up, why you got fired, mm. maybe a difficult uh, requirement that you have, and what they found was that in interviews there's this other shoe effect that an interviewer and on dates we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're like, what's the bad news here? This is sounding good, but there's something bad. And we actually, as humans, don't believe the good news until we hear the shoe. Oh, wow. Like part of our brain, if we feel that someone has tough news, we're like, I don't know about this. Mm. So actually, you're better off dropping the shoe early and first. So if you have tough news, whether that's in a romantic situation, professional or social, you're better off saying, listen, I have some tough news. We're going to get through it. I want to talk about all of it, but here's what it is. I know that sounds opposite of the, the the poop sandwich method, but what is important about that is you're being direct, you're being honest, mm -hmm. and you're also saying, I am in control of this information. Mm -hmm. What can make people feel better when they're receiving bad news is feeling that at least you're confident in delivering it. Mm -hmm. The worst thing for someone receiving bad news is when you're not confident delivering it, it makes me feel even more anxious. Yeah. And so I think that going into it and saying, look, I have some news, we're going to talk about it, we're going to figure out, we're going to solve it, saying the bad news and then going into relief words. So when we hear bad news, the one thing we don't want to feel is alone mm -hmm. and we don't want to feel hopeless. Mm. So if you have bad news, what you actually want to end on is not good news. Like there's nothing worse than like, you're fired, but you were a great employee. Right. <laughs> but you got a great smile. Like no, what? Like <laughs> yeah. no one's going to have that. But what, what someone would want is feeling less alone and feeling not hopeless. Mm. So it's, hey, I have some tough news. I'm going to have to let you go. Listen, I want to set you up for a really great job in the future. So mm. I will make sure that I'm here for this transition for you. I'm going to write a great recommendation letter for you. And I want to make sure that you're not going to be alone in this in this job search. I'm going to make sure that you have something good next. That's great. So at least you're ending on something that is hopeful and not alone. Yeah. And I think that that's the most important thing with tough news. Oh, man. Wow. This is great. I hope you, no one has to fire anyone soon. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I hope. <laughs> but if you do, yeah. It's interesting because the job interview, I'm just trying to like reframe it. Let's say uh, I got to like tell the employer I dropped out of high school. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. Like how do you deliver that? How would you deliver that news yeah. in a job interview? Okay. So you have your first impression. So yeah. I don't want you to walk in with this news. Right. right? Like I don't want you to be like, hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm a dropout. <laughs> like, like it's not that early. Right. So it's you make a really good first impression. You use really good warmth cues. So warmth cues for a first impression. So you want to always have some sort of physical acknowledgement. So that could be either a handshake mm -hmm. or a wave of some kind. We like to be physically acknowledged. Mm -hmm. um, uh, head tilt, nodding, making eye contact contact, closing the physical distance. So going in for a handshake, that's really important. Nail those first. That's going to okay. set you up for the good first impression. Yeah. And then when the first or second question comes up, you answer the question, you say, and listen, I just want to bring this up early so that we can talk about it. Um, I actually didn't finish high school and I wanted to explain how that happened and why I think that I can, um, why I can overcome this for this job. Wow. Yeah. So you're framing your own bad news. You give the bad news. You're confident in delivering it. And then you always end with, again, 
not making them feel alone and not making them feel hopeless. Mm. So I know this is probably surprising, but here's why I know this isn't going to affect my performance on this job. In fact, I actually have a really creative way of thinking. I think that can help me with this job. Mm. So you're turning that weakness into a strength. Trying to. Yeah. 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 I think quite often that works. I, I don't have a college degree. I tried to drop out of high school personally and my guidance <laughs> counselor didn't let me. It was a very strange thing. You're, so you're like a you, failed high school dropout? Yeah. yeah. yeah I you're a failed high school dropout. Because I have OCD, I just kept going because he said <laughs> right. I had to like, keep going. Finish. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Here's here. It's kind of like when you tried to fire yourself, uh, your boss almost didn't let you quit. Yeah. So that, that's actually <laughs> one of the stories that you, when I, one of the most difficult conversations I had to have was with my boss and I put together this whole plan. He needed me to lay off 42 people. And I, as he said, you have two weeks to do it. I brought the plan back and my name was the first name on the list. And he thought it was a joke. Yeah. And he's like, and then he goes, wait, it's not a joke. No, I'm not going to let you quit. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that was an option. <laughs> I didn't plan for this. <laughs> and uh, eventually we we worked it out. But that's how much confidence he had as well. And so, um, but I, I will say that when we're having these difficult conversations, quite often the thing we perceive to be bad news isn't always bad news. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Chinese farmer parable. Are you familiar with the Chinese? Mm -hmm. far okay. So uh, very briefly is a uh, uh, Chinese farmer, um, his horse runs away. The whole town is like, oh no, so, so such bad news. I'm so sorry your horse ran away. He's like, uh, maybe. Uh, and they're like, it's terrible, right? Yeah, maybe. And next day the horse comes back with seven other horses and the whole town's like, oh my God, it's great. You own eight horses now. And isn't that good news? And he goes, yeah, maybe. And next day, his son's trying to break one of the new uh, wild horses. And his son breaks his leg by falling off of the horse. And the son, uh, uh, they're like, oh, my God, the whole town's like, this is terrible news. And the farmer goes, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and the next day, the government comes in to conscript the um, uh, people for the, the war they're fighting. They can't bring the son because mm -hmm. he has a broken leg. And the whole town's like, isn't this great news? Farmer says, maybe. Mm -hmm. And that's really the point behind all of this is like, no sometimes we think it's bad news. Yeah. Oh, you didn't finish college. Isn't that terrible? Maybe. 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 Yeah. But my perspective is I gained so much by not finishing college. Mm. And so to me, it was a wonderful thing. Uh, Ryan and I talked recently with TK Coleman about the uh, near death experience that he had in the podcast. And like, everyone's like, oh, that's terrible. And yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. But maybe I also learned something about that, about how to actually live. And all this is bonus time. And so maybe it's one of the best things that happened to me. And I would say for any of my introverts or my socially awkward people, every bad conversation you have, every horrible interaction that you have, that is a great learning experience. So it will never happen to you again. Mm. Like my best material for my books have come from my worst interactions <laughs> and my worst conversations. The <laughs> way great. that I learned cues was from the bad, quote unquote, the bad. Mm. But it's just like, mm, maybe, yeah. like maybe I could learn from this. Like maybe I could talk about it. Yeah. So if you're going through trying out some of these things and it doesn't go well, that isn't bad. Yeah. yeah. We have a question here from Jean. I'm in my 30s and I find it much harder to find good friends as an adult. What are some ways I can create meaningful connections that last? Mm, okay. So I really believe, I have a strong belief in this, in friendship dating. Amen. I think, I don't know why we're so ashamed to date for friends. It seems totally acceptable to date romantically. Yeah. But when you're looking for friends, you should date 
for friends as well, just like you date for a romantic partner. Mm. So first, you want to cast the net wide. You want to tell everyone you know, like when, when you're single, right? You said, oh, I'm looking for someone. Do you know anyone good? We should do the exact same thing when we're looking for a friend. Hey, I'm looking for some new friends. Mm. Here's the kind of friend I like. I like an extrovert. I like someone who's on time. Like, we should have a list of our perfect friends. Not that, mm. that should like keep you wedded to it, but we should be talking about with our friends mm-hmm. or people we know, hey, I'm looking for new friends. And then we should go on friendship dates and you should treat them like friendship dates. In that, the biggest problem that people have is they go on a friendship date for the first time and they don't really suss out, is this the right person for me? And then you have someone who's maybe fundamentally not compatible with you as a friend. Mm. And so it's thinking about what would make a good friendship. How are you a good friend? And then dating and looking for that very specific person. Dude, that is awesome. I, I will tell you that. Uh, so I signed up for OkCupid, which is a dating uh, website. But there is an option on there to check whether or not you're looking for friends. Yeah. But I mean, it's a it's a dating app. Yeah, so when you check friends, friends, there's always benefits. like an underlying. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. Like there should be a friends app. That is very upfront. Like, hey, this is not a dating app. Yeah. Um, and then explain, also explain how to have a friendship date. Here's how a good friendship date 100%. works. And then 100%. like, yeah, let people go at it. And then also, Love so that. two other things to think about for friendships is um, creating friendship allergies for friends that won't go well with you. So this is also for dating too, but for friends, it's even more important. Mm-hmm. So I create allergies, which is that you're going to repel the people who are not going to be for you. Mm. So uh, a really easy example here is if you are an on-time person, I'm an on-time person, I show up on time or early, like that's my personality. If you are late, I am destroyed. Mm. Right? Like I'm like, oh, they don't like me. They don't respect me. Like it's like we're yeah. like 10 minutes in and I'm like, oh. right. So I have said to friends, I'm an on-time person. If you're late, I will be a wreck when you Mm. get there. That's an allergy that I actually am very verbal about. And so my good friends who have remained my good friends know this about me. So the other thing is, say that you're looking for friends, like Mm -hmm. tell people, and then say, and I really need a blank. Like if you're a vegan and you only want to go to vegan restaurants, people don't date someone who's a meat lover Mm -hmm. or don't friendship date someone who's a meat lover. I think we can actually be really specific in what we want. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it took me... 30 something years to not be late with Josh, but I finally started to understand. <laughs> well, it's a sign, it's a sign of, uh, I, I see you, I respect you, I understand you. Yeah. Where for me, like being late is like, dude, what's five times just a flat circle, man. What's five minutes? <laughs> it's all a construct. It's all a construct. And by the way, I believe that intellectually, but I, what my, my other belief on top of that is, Hey, you're also wasting my time. Yeah. And if someone's 10 minutes late to the podcast and 10 people were here, you just wasted a hundred minutes. So of jo- of people's Josh time. went without his phone for like two months. Was it two months? Yeah. It was a two month experiment. No yeah, phone. Yeah. So, um, no mirrors he would send nice. me, he'd send me an email or he'd like go find a pay phone. He did not have a landline phone. It was, this was back, um, what? 2000 and 2011. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, he'd send me an email. Hey man, let's meet at this, uh, coffee shop at this time. I'll see you then. I'm like, all right, respond. Great. I'd be like five minutes late. He just left. (laughs) (laughs) I guess he's not showing up. I guess he's not showing up. See you later. (laughs) Did you secretly do that experiment just so you could go home when people were late? (laughs) Right? You're like, well, I couldn't text you, so I had to go home. (laughs) i tell you a lesson I did learn from that, though, because... The the only problem I have with Gene's question is it presupposes that one needs friends. Mm. And so mm. I think Epicurus talked about the need for relationships, but I think it's a little bit different from the need from friends. So mm. the need for connection is appreciably different from the need for friends. I have a very small group of friends. You can count them on one hand and still have digits left. Yeah. But I have a lot of connections to whom I'm still loving, caring, kind, and 
respectful to those people, right? But friendship is a little bit different for me. I no longer feel, because there was a time where I felt because of societal norms, I felt compelled to need friends, to have friends around me, to spend time with friends, right? And unfortunately, what happened is I didn't make time for myself. I was constantly drained meeting everyone else's needs. Now, with someone like Ryan, extreme extrovert, it was actually meeting his needs to be around more people. So it's not that my way is right and his way is wrong or vice versa. For the longest time, I thought his way was right. Mm -hmm. And thus, by proxy, my way was wrong. And so what I realized, like, oh, you don't actually need friends. You get to have friends. Mm. You get to choose those friends. Mm -hmm. And whether it's two friends or 200 friends, Mm -hmm. it's up to you to decide what is appropriate for your life. So let's say for this person, they want... They want to have friends. They don't need them, but they would really like to have some, you know, friendships in their lives. How do they go about making friends? Because we've we've talked about uh, a friendship uh, dating app. We've talked about, no, nah, really, you don't need friends. But let's talk about how you actually would find a friend. Okay. It's the weirdest tip, but it works. Okay. It so works. This is how I've made friends in all my new cities at networking events at conferences. Lines. Lines, lines are the best way to make friends. I have made some of my best business contacts and my best friends in lines. Here's why. If someone's in a line that you're in, you're already like-minded. Oh, standing in line, like standing yes. in queue. Yes. Standing, oh, literally standing in line. I thought you were going to start line. telling us certain lines you should use on people. Oh, <laughs> hey, Ryan, you, uh, you come here often? <laughs> what is it? Are you, are you hurting? You must have fallen from the sky. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Are you tired? You've been running around in my mind. <laughs> yeah. I so used to be a Ryan Nicodemus good. fan. Now I'm a whole air conditioner. <laughs> All right. So lines, you're standing in line. You're standing in line. You automatically have something in common with this person. First of all, the problem that adults have with making friends is context, right? It was very easy to make friends when we were younger because Mm -hmm. we had school, we had summer camp, we had new jobs, we had internships. Context was so easy. You were Mm -hmm. constantly forced into context where everyone was looking for friends. As adults, I'm not in a lot of new contexts, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm seeing my same people, my same work, my same colleagues. So you have to create mini contexts where you're in a place where you're forced to make conversation or connection and lines are it. I love that. So one, I want you to think about where would your ideal friend be standing in line? DMV. (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to meet some My ideal friend is at the front of the line. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) What are they waiting for? So so yeah, uh, I'm serious. No, coffee shops. Like Coffee shops are even like more specifically than that. Like I'll tell you where I met one of my greatest friends was Mm. at the farmer's market. So if you're at the farmer's market, we're probably already going to get along, yeah, right? Like I yeah. just, we're already, we're already spending our time on Saturday, by the way, Saturday, right when they open, that's the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you got yourself up on a Saturday morning, 8am, you're my friend, mm. right? So already there. And then at the place that sells green juice at the farmer's market at 7.55am, <laughs> you're my friend. <laughs> like that is where I met one of my closest friends. Oh, I love that. And so one, where would your closest friends be? Value wise, time wise, where would they be? So that could be farmer's market, but even like at a conference or event. Mm-hmm. I, when I, I used to go to South by Southwest, which is like a very big conference in Austin. And it was overwhelming for me as an ambivert. I mean, mm-hmm. how are you supposed to network with thousands of people? It was so anxiety provoking. And then I learned the trick, mm-hmm. which is all you do during the in-between sessions is stand in coffee lines. That's all you do. I would literally stand in line, get to the front, refill my coffee and get right back in line Mm. because there's these really long lines of 20 people. And it's a really easy way to be like, so what are you getting? Have you liked the speaker so far? Mm. What'd you learn today? Yeah. 
right? Like, hey, what brings you to South by? Mm. And it was like, you have to talk to them because you're in line. Mm -hmm. And if it's bad, you can be like, bye. (sighs) Yeah. So it's like this little tiny friendship date where you're in line. You're like, okay, we're in the same context. It's a very easy opener. What are you going to get for green juice? Oh, don't you love this farmer's market? Do you see the new tamales? I'm so excited, Mm. right? Like it's super easy to come up with some opening line. You don't have to walk across the bar. And then you have like a five to 10 minute friendship date. And if you click, great, you walk around the farmer's market together. Mm. You say, hey, I'm going to happy hour later. Do you want to join? And if you don't like them, you're like, see ya. Speed Mm. date. Enjoy your coffee. Yeah. Yeah. So I stand in a lot of lines. That's how I meet people. I love that. (laughs) The the other thing I would recommend is uh, meetup.com. Because basically, you've got all these groups that are... Uh, interested in the same thing. So you can just type in what you're interested, especially in like a place like Los Angeles, probably a little bit more difficult and, you know, Saskatoon, Canada, all that's a pretty big city. But- no, I met I met some good friends on a meetup for vampire fiction. Oh, wow. That's awesome. There okay. you go. Or minimalist.org. Yeah, or minimalist.org. Yes. It's another great place to meet some open-minded people, yes. for sure. Yes, and yeah. so by the way, you're putting yourself in a context that works with people. And if you want to go to those kind of events, as if you're looking for friends for this wonderful um, listener, you want to come preloaded with questions that are going to help you suss out the friend. So don't ask, how are you? Don't ask, what do you do? Ask things like, so, are you doing anything fun this weekend? Mm-hmm. Are they doing the kind of things you would do? Mm-hmm. Right? If they're like, oh, I don't do anything fun, they're probably not a good friend. Yeah, right? I'm going out partying. Like, right? I- I've yeah. had that and I say, like, oh, well, that's... I'm going nightclubbing. Bye. Right. See ya. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. hate nightclubs. Right? So, like, ask questions that are help you going to suss out Heck who's yeah. your ideal person early. But if you're a South By and they're like, oh, I'm going to go see this movie and it's the same movie you were going to see, then that's a perfect... Magic. Ooh, yeah, like, oh, wow, let's meet up. Magic. Yeah. And then so many times you'll notice, oh, you know that person? Oh, I know that person. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, asking the right questions, not sticking to, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, what brings you here? Right, like, yeah. That can also help you. So you have to come armed. If you want to make a friendship, it takes some work. It absolutely does. And it takes you uh, going through a little bit of discomfort. It's it's it, courage. Yeah, courage. I would say courage. And also look yeah. for friendship cues. So non-verbally, if someone doesn't want to talk to you, they're going to angle their body away. It's called anti-fronting. So when we like someone, we front with them. We mm-hmm. angle our toes, our torso, and our top towards them. Mm. That's what we do when we're trying That's to show. Like this. Exactly. You'll turn towards <laughs> me and I yeah. often will try to turn my body towards you. So fronting is what we do as a non-verbal sign of I want to be on the same page as you. Mm. So if someone turns towards you as they're talking, great. If someone's always angled away, they're probably not into it. Yeah. So fronting, um, also leaning in or closing the space different distance. So when someone leans into you or they come a little bit closer, that means they're actually trying to get to know you a little bit better. They're smiling. They're making eye contact. They're nodding. They're giving you a head tilt. Mm, Good. Friendship cues. Yeah. I look at people's feet a lot when I'm talking to someone, especially at a conference. Either they're like, yeah, they're pointing towards me or they're pointing away. When they're pointing away, I'm just like, and I'm wrapping this up. Yeah. Nice to meet you. And they're like, okay, thanks. Funny thing is people, when they have to go to the bathroom, they often point their feet towards the door. Uh, Okay. It's like yeah, I'll always look at feet too to see like where are they where are they thinking. And people people often point their feet towards their crushes. So like if you're ever curious what crushes are, you can often look at feet. <laughs> look where my feet are. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you too. Oh, that's sweet. Ryan, do you put out on the first friend date? <laughs> <laughs> no, third. Third. <laughs> it's got to be the third. Kristen has a question for us. Can you address the power of silence and how to use it responsibly? Now, Mm. real quick, Vanessa, in your book, you talk about two things, uh, how there is no mute button. So you can be silent, but also you're still not silent. Yes. You're silent with your words, but you're still speaking. Even with your lack of movement, you might be communicating something. And then on page 176, you uh, talked about, what did you say? Oh, pause for power. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... What, this is the biggest mistake smart people make. Mm. Smart people make, smart, smart people often think, I have a really good idea. My ideas speak for themselves. 
I don't know what cues to send, so I'm going to under cue. So a lot of really powerful people, you'll notice they almost become stoic, unreadable. I don't mean philosophically. I mean, they mute all their cues. They try to be as unreadable as possible. They try to be expressionless. Mm -hmm. That is a mistake of smart people who think my ideas are so good that I don't need to share them with good cues. Mm. The problem is, is muting is in itself a cue. Right. Poker players, when we studied poker players, poker players, when they have a really good or bad hand, they often go mute. Mm. And that is because muting is something that we do when we don't want to be noticed. So going mute or trying to be silent non-verbally is actually sending a cue in itself, which is cold, mm. unreachable, distant. So that's the first thing you have to know is going silent with your cues is actually a negative sign. It puts you in the danger zone. It makes people it makes it very hard for people to connect with you. Then verbally, vocally, going silent with a power pause is one of the best things you can do to create drama. So a power pause in speech is about 0.25 or half a second. It's pretty short, but we recognize that as something, as a lack of conversational scarcity. So people who are anxious, they have no pauses. Right? They speak really fast. They're afraid to pause because they're afraid someone's going to interrupt them. Mm. And so we're always listening for just those moments of silence to hear, are you conversationally abundant? Mm. Do you have faith that I'm not going to interrupt you? So I like silence purposeful, which is a mid-sentence pause to create drama or an end-sentence pause to create a rhetorical thought or to give someone space. So listen to these pauses. If I were to say, I want to tell you about a really big idea. So I use two mid-sentence pauses in there and it creates literally intrigue and drama versus if I were to say, I want to talk to you about a really big idea and this idea is going to change your life. Those pauses are creating where I want you to think. Mm. So pausing and silence is actually a way of showing conversational control. Oh, I love... So basically use the pause when you want the listener to reflect or to go into thinking. Yeah, like so just throw a little pause You're literally saying, I want to create intrigue with a mid-sentence pause, mm -hmm. or I want to create thought with an end-sentence pause. Oh, okay, okay. So you can be in control of that as mm. you're pausing. So silence is actually a very powerful thing because it signals that you're in control of the conversation. Yeah. We have a question here from Kim, and this one is, well, it's close to my heart. So really, it's a question from me. Ask through Kim. <laughs> <laughs> I have a terrible habit of interrupting others without meaning to, even with people I love and respect. Why do I do this? And what can I do to break the habit? Are you an interrupter? Oh, for sure. And I know the Not reason... Not as much as me. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close to being true. But here's what I'll say is I know why I do it. And it's a really ugly thing is I'm far more interested in what I have to say than what other people have to say. And that's the honest truth. That is the yeah. reason why people interrupt. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the listener, there's two reasons why people interrupt. One is that we are so excited. I'm going to say excited. I'm going to frame it as more positive. We're so excited about what we have to say that we interrupt because we want to get it in there. We're so excited. It's so contributing. We think it's so great that we want to contribute. The other way that we do it is we're afraid we're not going to get our turn. So we interrupt preemptively because we're like, what if I don't get my turn? And that comes from conversational scarcity. Mm. So remember that the antidote to interrupting is abundance, knowing that you're in a conversation with people who are going to respect your time, who want to hear what you have to say. The second thing is, and some tactics for yourself, is reminding yourself of conversational abundance, that you're going to put yourself in situations where people rely on you and they trust you and they want to hear from you. Mm. If you're in conversations or with people who don't, maybe those aren't your people. Like, I'm a big fan of 
if someone's not respecting you or they're creating conversational scarcity within you, maybe they're not your people. Yeah, and that's okay. That's okay. It's not good or bad. It just is. Right. And so if you find that with certain people, so for the, for the listener, think about when you interrupt. Who is it with? Is it with the same people over and over again? It might be that that person is creating conversational scarcity for you. Mm. And when is it? Is it certain business situations or certain romantic situations where you have some sort of scarcity? I would rather you tackle that issue with that person or in that place to see if you can get back the conversational confidence. That's going to immediately solve your interrupting issue. Mm. I also want to talk about the opposite, which is if someone's interrupting you. Can Mm. we talk about that for a second? Yeah. Yeah. So if you have someone who is interrupting you or a talker, there are three different cues you can use to get them to politely stop talking. Okay. So the first one is, and you guys have done this to me already very nicely in this podcast when you want to say something, is called the fish. The fish is when you open your mouth. And we know this as a cue that someone wants to say something. And so when we're conversational turn taking on Zoom, in person, if someone is talking a lot and you want to say something, just open your mouth. Yeah. And take a deep breath because they will, oh, Oh, she wants to say something. Yeah. That's the first thing. So the fish. Mm-hmm. The second thing I call the pupil, which reminds us of our school days. So when you raised your hand, your teacher knew that you had something to say. What you can do is you can do this subtly. So if you just slightly raise your hand up just mm-hmm. towards the person, and the more you want to say something, you get a little closer to the person. Yeah. Like in a in a, that, in a loving gesture way. Exactly. Yeah. And you're open-palmed. So you're open, you're showing open, but you're saying, and you can even partner the fish with the with the with the pupil. So yeah. <laughs> Yes. Right. And, the, and by the way, the more aggressive it gets, the farther your hand goes into their personal space and the higher up it goes. So you're basically like this at the very end. Right? <laughs> like that's the most aggressive place we can be. Hopefully you never get there. <laughs> Hopefully you never get there. Yeah. And the very last one is an anchor touch. Sometimes daydreamers, dreamers who are like just talking and talking and talking, they, they need to be brought back to reality. And so you can give them a very light touch on the hand or forearm. That's the safest part of the body. So just a mm-hmm. that little touch will will bring them back to reality. And so that's the last one. If you have done all three of those things, you know, all three of those cues and they're still talking, they're not your person. Yeah. They're not your person. And that's, yeah, again, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I have noticed that there are times when I'm speaking with certain people that I'm so interested in them that I don't interrupt naturally. Mm. And it's rare that I find that. (laughs) It's rare that he finds interesting people. (laughs) It's true. It's rare that I'm interested. And so like, what I have to do is I have to force myself to be interested. Mm-hmm. We talked about that earlier with the uh, how to win friends and influence people quote is the way to be interesting is to be interested. And so asking questions to learn more about the person, if it's not a natural default for me, that is okay. Mm-hmm. I can still show up with those questions, pause and show interest in you. You just did the fish. I did it. I did it because I want to add something here. I have another secret way that you can do this. If you're with someone and you're a little bored and you're not actually interested, another secret way to get interested to get yourself there is to just read their cues. So you think of them as pure cue practice. Look at their face, look at their gestures, look how they're holding their body, look at their feet. It adds an element of listening. I think true listening is with your whole body. You're listening with your ears, you're listening with your eyes, you're listening with your instinct. And so if you're feeling like, I'm, I gotta get interested, I gotta get engaged, just make it cue practice. Be like, okay, what fa- what's their face doing? What's their hand doing? It will automatically sort of trigger that sense of interest. I'll tell you, the cue that I use, which is not good, is Uh-oh. the yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, uh-huh. it's a cue. It's a verbal cue or the fast nod. It's a verbal cue of like, okay, my turn to talk. Mm. Which, Shut up. 
Yeah, right, exactly. All right, shut up. <laughs> Which there are so many, yeah, there are so many other cues I could use, like the three you mentioned, rather than doing the the one that seems dismissive almost, mm-hmm. can, can seem dismissive. Here's a big one for us. We have a question from Kathy. If we are forced to see Debbie Downers every day, how can we communicate with them without letting them bring us down? Mm-hmm. I think this happens a lot when people go to work and the, there's just coworkers they're forced to share the space with and they're always complaining, <sighs> blaming, mm. just being that person that, and by the way, it is contagious. Mm-hmm. It is contagious. It so is let's talk dangerous. about that. Okay, so here's some good news about, I call them dream killers. So I don't call them Debbie Downers because I have a Debbie and she's lovely and I feel bad <laughs> calling them Debbie. So I call them dream killers. So mm. a dream killer is that personality where it's like, wah, wah, like everything is bad. Yeah. It's never good. They always have something bad to say. They can't take the good news. Dream killers. They just mm-hmm. kill dreams. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the good news. Dream killers are less work energetically than ambivalent people. Mm. When research looks at relationships, Actually, ambivalent relationships, relationships were like, do we like that person? Do they like me? Do I know that person? Those are actually more energetically draining. Mm. They did a study with police officers and they had police officers uh, rank all the people in their uh, precinct. And they found that police officers who had a lot of toxic people, dream killers in their in their precinct, actually had very fine workplace balance and happiness because they knew that person was a dream killer. Mm. So they didn't go to lunch with them. They didn't try to make small talk with them. They got it done. They stuck to just the work. And that was it. Mm. It was actually the police officers who had the most ambivalent relationships where they suffered. Because then they would try. They'd be like, so how's it going? Mm. They'd be like, do you want to go to lunch? So here's the good news. If you have a dream killer in your life, you know they're a dream killer. Label them as such. Try to get that work done. Be as efficient as possible. Don't go to lunch. Don't make small talk, right? You can treat them politely, but you have lots of boundaries around them. In fact, it's the ambivalent relationships that take the most out of us. So there is one particular question we had from a listener a while back, and they said, you know, I go to pick up my kid up at school. I wait in my car, and there's a particular parent who's always there <laughs> who comes over to talk to me uh-huh. and is just this um, dream killer. Uh-huh. And uh, she was like, "How do I approach that?" So when when you're when you don't have to be around them, how do you how do you like help them maybe frame things a little bit differently, or how do you give them the cues where you're like, "I, I, I don't." Yeah. Okay, so you can't really change a dream killer. And this is really important. Yeah. The reason why dream killers bother us so much is we want to fix them, and you can't. Yeah. You really can't change people. Yeah. I, they have to change for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why it's like, oh, could I make them better? You know, could I make them more hopeful and positive? And so we spend time trying to convince a dream killer they shouldn't be negative. It's not going to work. Right. So the first thing is, is tell, give yourself permission to be like, that's who they are. I accept them for who they are. Mm. Stop trying to change them. They're not going to change. Mm-hmm. The one thing that you can do is try to find mutual aha moments. So with a dream killer, maybe there's something that you both hate. That's great. <laughs> right? Like maybe you both are driven, like this is mom. Maybe you're both driven crazy by the long wait at the pickup area. Mm. Ugh. Can you believe, Sarah, how long this is today? Mm. I can't believe it. At least that's a mutual, like, ugh moment. And mm. you're not trying to change them. And mm. it's an actual true authenticity. And it helps you build a little bit of rapport. Yeah. So I think, like, don't try to change them. And also find the things that you can both either quetch about or worry about mm. or complain about. Because at least that's authentic. Yeah, I love that. And just to add to that, you probably could find something that they don't get down on. Yes. And you might be able to, like, Eventually bring that up. Eventually you will. Yeah. Right? Like, there will be. Mm. I guarantee if you just dive into the downer, like, if you just, like, dive into it and you're like, yeah, I hate it when people heat up tuna salad in the microwave. <laughs> 
That is the worst, right? You just like go into it. You have that moment and then they might say something a little positive, right? They might tell you, oh, but I tried this great new Thai place. Have you tried it? Mm. <gasps> you just found something good, yeah. right? Sometimes if you go negative, they'll go positive with you. Mm. Oh, and then I got to find a way also to not continue to mimic their dream killing, right? Yeah. And so like, you know, they, they come, oh, these damn Republicans or these Democrats, <laughs> like whatever. And it's like, uh, I'm opting out of this conversation. Now, I'll do, I will do. won't do so in a way that's aggressive like that, but I'll just be, oh, I haven't heard about that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, yeah. and oh. that'll help me move on to whatever the next thing is. Love it. So I haven't heard about that. So I do this all the time. People always ask me to read cues of like current news cases. Oh, wow. So like whatever murder is happening, I'm getting asked about it, oh, right? Wow. Like everyone's like right now, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, what do you think? Like everyone's, yeah. everyone's asked. So what I always say is, oh, I haven't been following it. I haven't been watching it because I don't want to get into the negativity. Or I can say, oh, it's complicated. It's really complicated. <laughs> That's good. So you can try that one with, with anything yeah. political. Oh, man, that is a complicated topic. We don't got all day, so let's just talk about coffee. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about confidence and charisma. We have a question here from Sue. Why do people confuse politeness for weakness or a lack of confidence? Is there a way to project confidence while still being humble? It's a really good note here. People-pleasing, being polite is an aspect of warmth. So when we think about the two important traits for charisma, warmth and competence, we have to think of like their their siblings, right? So warmth, people-pleasing, being polite, being caretaking, saying yes, that's all warmth. The reason why warmth can be seen as not take, being taken seriously because it's the opposite of competence. And so you can still be polite, but you have to dial up the competence cues. If you're all warm and all polite and all people-pleasing, you'll say yes and we'll walk all over you. Mm. But what you can do is be polite and be people-pleasing with competence. Mm. So that is setting a very specific boundary. So someone asks you, hey, can you take on this project? And you don't want to really say, I don't got time for that. So Mm. you say, you know, let me look at it. I have to look at my calendar and my deadlines for the next week. Why don't you email me over the specs of the project and I'll see what I can do. Mm. Polite, warm, but also competent. So whenever you're saying yes, whenever you're thinking about being polite, people will think it as weak if you are not adding competence. That's because it's too warm. Mm. In your book, you asked a question early on, you, who is the most charismatic person that you know? Yeah. And for me, it's Ryan, for sure. Like, oh, um, oh my keep going. Should we all hold hands? <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. I don't see myself that way at all, but thank you very much. He's, he's certainly competent, but he's also very warm. And that the, the mixture there comes off in a way to people. And I think it's why he did so well in the corporate world and sales jobs, managing people is because there was the element of, of competence there. But it wasn't just supreme competence and the coldness, right? right? And I realize that sometimes I can come off as cold and I have to compensate for yeah. that because I can come off as competent, but like also uh, at a distance. Mm-hmm. But if I approach the world in a loving way, then it adds that warmth. And it's also not disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Loving means to accept other people. I'm not trying to change other people, right? Yeah. And, and I can say no or I can say yes, but I can do so in a way that's loving. Yeah. yeah. And you can also say, I would love to say yes to that, but I'm so sorry I just can't. Mm. Right? Like you can lovingly set up a boundary. Right. And you can often often tell them, here's what I'm saying yes to. That's why I'm saying no to this. 100%. I mean, it all comes down to we want to know, can I trust you and can I rely on you in every interaction, every situation? So no matter what it is you're being asked, if you can always balance out non-verbally, verbally, vocally, intention-wise, the warmth and the competence, you are actually helping someone understand you. Yeah. 
I love that. Man, this is like, I'm learning so much between yeah. the minimal and the maximal. Like I am, uh, yeah. Yay. Your your book is going to be my Bible. Yes. <laughs> my, yes. My competence Bible. I don't think you need it, but yes. Oh, thanks. By the way, Josh, you are just as equally, if not more charismatic. Oh, <laughs> this is so thanks. sweet. Thanks. <laughs> Let's finish up with a, uh, a question here from, from Michelle. When there's a conflict going on near me, I get so stressed out that I just want to leave the room. How can I show confidence in these situations when walking away isn't an option? Yeah. So this is a real chemical reaction that our bodies have. So the very first thing is to recognize there is a reason that's happening. You are catching the anxiety. And that's important to know, right? So Dr. Matthew Lieberman, he found that when he put participants in an fMRI machine and he flashed them a fear microexpression. So fear microexpression is when we widen our eyes and our eyelids and then we open our mouth. <gasps> And we take in a deep breath. Exactly. The, those lines appear on top of our forehead. That's actually a universal fear expression. Mm. When he put people into an fMRI machine and he flashed them fear, they caught the fear. Their own amygdala lit up. Mm. Okay. So seeing someone else in a difficult conversation, or if they're anxious or they're afraid, you literally see that fear microstress, you catch it. Mm. So first of all, this is actually good news. It means you're human. It means you have empathy. It means you're not a sociopath. Yeah. Right. Sociopaths don't catch emotions as easily. Right. So one, this is good. It means you are really, truly human. You're probably empathetic. Second is, Dr. Matthew Lieberman found that he could deactivate the fear if you labeled it. So when he instructed participants in the fMRI to say fear, either in their head or verbally, it immediately deactivated the amygdala. Oh, wow. So why this is so empowering is yeah. if you're in a room and you're seeing it's tense, it's tense. I want you to label everything you see. That puts your brain in control. So you can say, wow, I see some fear. I hear some defensiveness. I just saw contempt. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see some blocking. I see some distancing. Well, there's a lip purse. Okay, I see some withholding. Those are all cues, right? The moment you're telling yourself what those cues are, your brain is like, we can do it. We can control it. And so control, I think, is actually our back door into confidence. Mm. As soon as you name it. it tame it. Yeah, what's yeah? That's uh, I, what is it? Anthony DeMello says that if uh, as soon as you name a thing, you cease to see it. But but what he's talking about there is like um, if you see if you name a bird, now all of a sudden it's a way for us to dismiss it, right? Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, that's a bird, and we've dismissed it. But the same thing is true with fear, right? Exactly. I see fear here, and that's how I'm able to dismiss it. That's mm. it. So let's talk about some of the negative cues. There's only 14 of them, so they're very easy to learn. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Like you just once you know what that's coming at you, it's really easy to see where it comes from. Mm -hmm. So lip purse is one negative cue, or it's a withholding gesture. So when we press our lips into a hard line, mm. 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 It's actually a universal withholding gesture. We notice that liars often do it right before or right after they lie. Oh. Um, so we did a lot of lie detection research in our lab where we had people submit videos of themselves lying, playing specifically two truths and a lie. You ever play that game? Oh, two yeah. Truths and a lie? It's a good okay. one. Yeah. So we had them submit two truths and a lie, two truths, statements and a lie. And we tried to guess which one of the lie was and we coded the differences. We wanted to know what did they do on the lying statement that looked different from the truth. Mm -hmm. So one of them was people would often lip purse right before they said the lie statement. And that is because liars are trying to keep it together. They're trying to hold it in. They're trying not to give themselves away. So lip purse is a sign of withholding. It's a good time to be like, we all good. This all makes sense. Mm. Anything I missed, right? Like that's a great sign to verbally try to suss something out. The other um, negative cue uh, is called the question inflection. So question inflection is only positive when it's used on an actual question. It's not good when it's used on a statement. So mm. question inflection is when we go up at the end of our sentence. Mm. So it sounds like we're asking. 
but actually we're saying. Yeah. And it's very confusing for the brain. So what we heard is most often on the lies, people ask them. So it sounds like this. You want to, we'll play it. You want to see if you can guess which yes. one is my lie? Yeah. Okay. I'm from Los Angeles. I love dogs. I'm a vegetarian. The last. Yeah, the last. I'm yeah. not a vegetarian. Yeah. Okay. Right. okay. So that question flexion, liars instinctively do that because they're asking, do you believe me? Yeah. Right. And so what happens is, is people will ask their price or they'll ask their timeline and they wonder why people push back. Yeah, Someone, you had an example in the book where the guy was like, uh, my price is $500? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And when you ask, like you're in a salary negotiation, you're like, I would like to be paid $70,000. <laughs> you're basically saying, I don't really believe this number and you shouldn't either. Right. That's when you get pushback. So if you have hard news or a boundary and you ask it, you are literally saying to someone, push back. Mm. push back on this. So a, a wrongly placed question inflection is a negative cue. It shows doubt or disbelief. Uh, another one is contempt. We almost talked about this earlier with resting bothered face. It's a one-sided mouth raise or a smirk. Uh, it's a one-sided mouth raise. Kind of means like better than, yeah, right? Like I'm sort of better than scornful <laughs> disdain. Mm -hmm. So I always look out for the contempt as a sign of something possibly negative. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some other ones. Uh, an incongruent nod. So if someone says yes and shakes their head yes, but they're actually shaking their head no, if it's incongruent. So mm. you ask someone, I'll ask my daughter, I have a four-year-old daughter, and I'll be like, did you eat an extra cookie? And she'll be like, no, <laughs> shaking her head yes. <laughs> That's great. And I'm like, mm, are you sure? Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, incongruency is also another one that you can always look out for. <laughs> oh, wow. The head nod makes me think of uh, in India. They have mm. all the, do you know about yes, this? Yes. So nodding in Bulgaria, India, and Pakistan mm -hmm. are slightly different because they often use the nod or um, like a sideways nod yeah. as I'm thinking or processing. So that's an interesting cultural cue because we don't really do the sideways nod very much. Right. But in India, Pakistan, and Bulgaria, they do. They do the sideways nods. And I, and I hear in India, it's like you have 20 different nods. Yes, right. There's like, a, there's a YouTube video where this gentleman goes through all the different yeah, nods in that. India. Yes. It's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. Yeah. So, so when we talk about cues, most of the cues I talk about I try to stick to universal just because we have people from all over the world listening. But there are a couple of cultural notes of what is acceptable. So nodding is a punctuator. It adds emotion. But in Indian Bulgaria, it can have slightly different yeah. meanings. Just like in the United States, like we have different touching rituals. And in Europe, we mm -hmm. don't cheat kiss as much as they do. Right. right. So like those are all different. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I saw one where an Italian guy did um, hand gestures. Oh, yeah. And there's like... Yeah, all these hand gestures from Italians. Anyway, it's very fascinating. Also, very, like, very you know, Italians use this gesture more. Right. I wish we used this. I'm trying to bring it here. Yes. Right? Like, it's so beautiful. Or like, a yeah. mm, like So I'm trying to bring that here, this gesture. Yeah. I'm just so grateful we're able to hug people again. Oh, I yes. know. There was a, a several-year period there where it was... Oh, and I still announce it now, usually. Um, although when people... They they often come up and they know like hey you guys are the minimalists they they expect the hug at this yeah. point uh -huh. but if they don't then I I have to announce it because uh, you know one of the biggest criticisms that we get is that we are overly that we're overly aggressive. hugging yeah the, we were in Toronto I can think of a couple instances where I was like um I, I felt I don't know if, I don't know how I felt it wasn't good but when a woman came up to us in Toronto and she was like can you guys just not, she's like, can you just please, she's like cringy, can you please just not do the hugging thing? Like it's so, but I was able to see like, oh, this is her, this isn't me. Yeah, I won't do it with you, but please don't ask me to not yeah, hug. She ended, we, up, she ended up hugging us though. Yeah. yeah. Was it a good but, hug? It was no. great. It was, no. a, <laughs> it was a good hug because I could tell oh, she yeah. was trying. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, I, but one time I was at a farmer's market 
in Hamilton, Montana. Meeting best friends. Yes, right? <laughs> and this woman comes and she's like, oh my God, you're one of the minimalists. I said, yeah, I am. I was like, you want a hug? And she literally, verbatim, she was like, you know, I've went through this situation in my head by you meeting you and whether or not I was going to give you a hug. And she's like, no, I don't want to hug you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's fine. <laughs> but it was like, I was like, oh, like my feelings are, they were hurt for a second. Oh. It, it wouldn't hurt my feelings, but it also tells me, oh, this isn't my type of person. Yeah, right? I felt mis- That's an allergy. Yeah. Which is you okay. Create, yeah, I felt you, misunderstood. Yeah, you create an allergy that if you're not a hugger, we're probably not going to get along. That's like a good thing. Yeah. By the way, a little universal cue is if you want a hug, you should approach someone like this. We know this is the universal gesture for hugging, both hands open, palms up. <sighs> so you, you can actually, I do this like 10 feet away from people because I'm also a hugger. So I'll be like, it's so good to see you. And like, I'll like, I approach them like this and they go, oh, a hug's coming. If you do not want a hug, you should blade. Mm. So you angle your shoulder back and you put your hand out 10 feet away. Hey, it's so good to see you. You know that they're coming in for a handshake. Yeah. That helps and then me. I just block the handshake. <laughs> like, high five that handshake. Hug. Yeah. Unconsensual <laughs> hugging. A memoir by Joshua Filsmuller. <laughs> anyway. Um, so thank you for that gesture because what I usually do is this because I prepare for the actual hug. Yes. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, they, they're like giving me a high five. No. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Because this is the high five gesture. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like this, and they're like, no, it's, it's a low and low and yeah. open. Like yeah. I'm going to. I'm going to come in and bear hug you. And they, this is the high five gesture. Right. right? Yeah. I'm going to high five you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is good because quite often what I will do is I sort of do the crucifixion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It, just, it looks like I'm in excruciating pain or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Vanessa, thank you so much yes. for doing this today. This incredible. Folks, thank you can you. check out her book. It is called Cues. Here it is for the video version. And uh, where else should we send folks to check out your work? Oh, so I have a fun YouTube channel where I break down cues of interesting people. So if you want to see me break down the rock, or Brittany or yeah. oh man I have a lot of fun breaking down cues on my YouTube channel Vanessa Van Edwards and also scienceofpeople.com we have all kinds of cues courses and I put up free content every week oh, we'll amazing. put links to both of those in the show notes yeah. I want to acknowledge you I want to thank you for being here today what a wonderful book what a beautiful conversation today yeah. I had so much fun Keep thank up you the great so work. much thank you thank, thank you, you. alright y'all love people use things we'll see you soon thank you patrons Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it